0: You got a Bible with you, you can go ahead and start finding Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The book of Ecclesiastes, is a little, it's a little bit tough to find. Uh, you can go to Psalms and turn right, that's the middle of the Bible, or you can just look up the page number. So Ecclesiastes is this comprehensive good life experiment a good life experiment. It's somebody with more resources and more wisdom and more money than you and me trying to figure out what the good life really is. And we started off studying Ecclesiastes by seeing the writer of Ecclesiastes' conclusion before he takes us into the data. So a couple of weeks ago, we opened up scripture and his conclusion is pretty dark. It's pretty bleak. His conclusion is that everything is meaningless or everything is vain under the sun. So all of our toil to find the good life and the various things that we go to to bring deep, significant meaning to our lives, what he's saying is all the stuff we turn to under the sun ends up not giving us any gain. Well, here's what's happening today. It's really, really beautiful. Instead of just giving us the conclusion up front and asking us to take his word for it, he now wants us to check his math. So he starts with the conclusion everything under the sun that I toiled for to find meaning and significance, to find the good life, none of it actually paid off. It was all meaningless. It was all like smoke or vapor. And now he's going to take us into the data. Now he wants us to walk through the controls on his experiment and he wants us to see if we arrive at the same conclusion. Now, as we talk about this today, we're we're going to be looking at the topic of pleasure. We're going to look at hedonism. We're going to look at his experiment to try to find the good life in maximizing the things that feel good, taste good, and smell good in this world. And as we do this, I want to start off with some quotes by a guy named Blaise Pascal. Uh, Blaise was a beautiful, brilliant mathematician. He ended up being somewhat of a philosopher, theologian. He was still a scientist, and he wrote really deeply, and he wrote really, really honestly uh, about the human angst for happiness. Here's what he says. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it, it's the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Here's what he's saying. There's this underlying current in all humanity that we do what we do and we chase what we chase because we all want to be happy. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, Pascal was writing in this weird moment in culture where there was another mathematician who ended up being sort of the father of rational philosophy. His name was Descartes. And Descartes was this rational guy. He's the one that came up with the quote, I think, therefore I am. And what Descartes was doing is Descartes was saying, hey, if you want to find value and meaning in life, it has to be based on scientific observation." It's all based on reason. If you want to find the good life, Descartes would say, if you want to get to what's real and true, you have to observe, you have to measure, and you have to do it with rational thought. So Descartes is basically, he's building this foundation for the next 300 years of philosophy that guys like Nietzsche are going to build on, that guys like Hume are going to build on. And in that moment where it's all about science and reason and what we can figure out with our human intellect, you have Blaise Pascal, who's actually taken a different route, even though he's a scientist. And what he's saying is that there's some mysterious things happening in the human soul that we need to pay attention to. You can't arrive at all that's true and meaningful just with data. You also have to look at what's happening in your heart. He says this, What is it then that this desire and this inability proclaim to us, but that there was once in man a true happiness, of which there now only remains to him the mark and the empty trace? Which he in vain tries to fill from all of his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. Here's what he's saying Um, Hey, it's not just reason that gets you to arrive at truth, it's also recognizing that there's this vacuum in your soul that feels kind of like nostalgia. It feels kind of like this whisper that once we were happy, once we were fulfilled as people, once life had deep meaning, and now we don't seem to know where to find that meaning, and it drives us on a quest. It leads us on a quest to find the good life, and he's going to use a phrase that's really, really helpful in diagnosing the human condition. Here's what he says. But these things all these things that we go to under the sun to try to find the good life, these things are all inadequate because the infinite abyss, the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say only by God himself. Here's what he's saying. If you really get honest, if you really have the courage to get quiet, he writes a lot about how we really don't have the courage to get quiet. That's why we're so busy and driven and entertained and distracted. But if you did something really brave, if you really got still, if you really got quiet and you had the guts to look inside of you, what you would find is this trace of happiness that human beings were made for that does not exist in your soul. And in fact, if you were really honest about it, it feels like an infinite abyss. That sounds really heavy. That sounds really dark. That sounds like, like a cure album. Like this is heavy weighty stuff. An infinite abyss exists in your soul. And the reason it's infinite is because it was, it was the infinite God that created you to find ultimate happiness in him. And what Pascal is saying is, hey, man, all human beings are trying to be, we're we're trying to find happiness. We're trying to get place back to that place of the garden where there's joy and there's depth and there's beauty and there's meaning. And we're trying to do it under the sun with all of this created stuff. And at the end of the day, it's really vain and it's really futile. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's Ecclesiastes. He goes on and says this, he only is our true good, this infinite, unchangeable God. And since we have forsaken him, it is become a strange thing that there is nothing in nature which has not been serviceable in taking his place. The stars, the heavens, earth, the elements, plants, cabbages, leeks, animals, insects, calves, serpents, fever, pestilence, war, famine, vices, adultery, incest. And since man has lost the true good, everything can appear to him equally good, even his own destruction. Those so opposed to God, to reason, and the whole course of nature. Here's what he's saying, man. Uh, We were made for happiness, a kind of happiness that goes deeper than just being entertained or having diversions. You were made for this transcendent kind of happiness, this big kind of happiness, this eternal kind of happiness. And because we've lost it, And because all we can do is use our senses and our little meager intellect to try to find it, we point that desire for infinite happiness and we point that void in our hearts at all kinds of stuff under the sun to try to find the good life. And what he's saying is, ultimately, it leads to self-destruction. Now, if you prefer a different philosopher, here's what Courtney Love said. She, She said... I think self-destructiveness is given a really bad rap. I think it can also mean self-reflection and poetic sensibility. So whether you land with Blaise Pascal or Courtney Love, uh, the reality is if we could get really honest and really still, you would admit that you're not okay. And your not okayness is such a big deal that you actually have to try to deal with it. You have to try to fill it. You have to try to answer it. You have to try to satisfy it. And what we're going to look at today in Ecclesiastes is this really wise, really resourced person's pursuit of filling the infinite abyss with pleasure. He looked inside of his soul, and he realized something was missing, and he looked around at the world, at all the things under the sun, and it seemed logical to him that maybe, just maybe, because our bodies are made for pleasure, that pleasure could answer that deep longing what we're going to see is that Ecclesiastes, every week that we walk through this, Ecclesiastes is an invitation to have an honest conversation with ancient wisdom that's needed in a modern world. So today, we're going to talk about, is the good life found in pleasure? Can you find the good life in hedonism? And we'll start with Ecclesiastes chapter two, starting in verse one. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. And I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? Uh, The occasionally funny and always super pervy Woody Allen. He's kind of a creepy man. He said this, you can live to be a hundred if you give up all the things that make you want to live to be a hundred. So here's what's happening in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 this guy is basically saying, hey, let's try all the things that might keep me from living to be 100, and maybe just maybe those things will actually make life worth living. And So this wise person, this explorer, here's what he does. He tests himself with pleasure in some really unique ways. Now, um, the book of Ecclesiastes, it might have been written by Solomon, that's possible, but even if it wasn't written by Solomon, it's true fiction about the life of Solomon. So if Solomon didn't write it, some wise teacher in Israel looked at the life of Solomon, which is a life of excess and a life of wisdom, and he wrote about the lessons we should learn. And here's what we see him pursuing to try to find meaning. Let me give you some areas. First, he tries the pleasure of alcohol. He tries the pleasure of alcohol. Look at verse three. I searched with my heart, How to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So here's what he starts with. One of the most sensual pleasures, one of the most easily accessible pleasures, one of the most uh, readily available medicines to numb out our souls when we're really sad, he starts with booze. And some commentators have tried to clean up the book of Ecclesiastes, like, we don't really think that this stuff should be in the Bible. Uh, And they've tried to write that he probably didn't drink to excess. He might have had a glass of wine. I think that's probably rubbish in light of the context here. He explores the pleasures of alcohol. Can it really satisfy? Can it really medicate? Can it really make life worth living? And, And I think when you look at the life of Solomon, you have to admit that he didn't do it with, like, box wine. He's not drinking natty light. Like, he has... He has the best booze imaginable. Um, his wine was so good, I like to think it was probably more like an IPA than wine. And he explores He explores the pleasures of alcohol, and he gets to the end, and it falls into the category of vanity. It didn't fix him. It didn't change him. It didn't satisfy him. It didn't answer him. So then he moves on to explore the pleasure of a great home. The pleasure of a great home. Look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Uh, If if you look at the book of 1 Kings, Solomon is David's son. And what's fascinating is Solomon, David's son, he takes seven years to build a temple for God, which was known as God's house, seven years. He takes 13 years to build his own crib, right? Seven years for God's house, 13 years for his house. What's happening? Here's what he's saying. My soul is restless, I feel inwardly homeless. I feel like I don't belong. I feel like this universe is really big and really scary and really crazy and life is really stressful. So maybe the good life is gonna be found in having a sweet house that's an escape from all of the things that are ugly in the world. And when the Bible describes his house, it's like, it's like a really good episode of MTV Cribs. Here's what it says in 1 Kings 10, 18. The king also made a great ivory throne And he overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seats were armrests with two lions standing beside the armrest. While 12 lions stood there, each one on each side of a step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold none were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon, for the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Haram. And once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bring gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. I mean, I don't know how nice your house might be. Some of you probably have some pretty sweet houses and you're really proud of, you know, like central heat and air, and maybe you've got, maybe you've got one of those really nice NASCAR couches that recline with cup holders, right? You, you might have some sweet stuff in your house, but you know what you don't have? You don't have an ivory throne covered in gold. Solomon's like, you know what would go good with an ivory throne covered in gold? Lions on every step. And, and you know what would really kick off this backyard? Some peacocks with apes, Right? Like, he, he was Michael Jackson in Neverland before Michael Jackson was Michael Jackson in Neverland. This is ridiculous. He's over the top. He's over the top with this house. And he gets all the comfort that you can get out of a house, and he gets all of the social standing you can get out of a house. I'm not trying to meddle with anybody, but kind of. And then he gets to the end of having the sweetest house you could possibly imagine, the dream house that all of us would want. And he's like, you know what? I'm still... I'm still feeling that infinite abyss. So then he moves on from the house and he tries the pleasure of nature. I really resonate with this. This is a a place I'm bent towards being an idol worshiper. Verse 5, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. And I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he's like, you know, my house isn't really satisfying. Maybe creation will. And he becomes one of the first conservationists in human history. He has gardens and he has forests and he plants pools and it's beautiful. You could walk through Jerusalem and see these fountains and you could sit under the shade of trees and the smell of fruit blossoms would be all over the town. And he enjoys it like crazy, to be sure, but it doesn't actually satisfy the longings of his soul. So then he moves on to the pleasure of money. And he does this big time. Look at verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had gone before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. Uh, Any other children of the early 90s that remember the show DuckTales and Scrooge McDuck? Yeah. When I think of Solomon, I think Scrooge McDuck. He's backstroking through just piles of gold in his living room. Like that's Solomon's life. He has more money than anybody else that was alive at that time. He's completely over the top wealthy. He has all of the things that money can buy, but money really couldn't buy him peace of soul. It ends up being vanity. And so then he moves on from money to try the pleasure of art, the pleasure of art. Look at the second part of verse eight. I got singers, both men and women. Now, here's what's crazy about this. In ancient times, um, when the Old Testament was written, there were cult singers or there were temple singers, but there weren't a lot of just private singers. And you certainly didn't have private singers in your house. Um, That would be like the equivalent of you having a really rich friend who calls you up, and your friend is like, Hey, we're doing a house party. Want you to come over? And you're like, Sounds good. What are we going to do? And he says, Well, you know, uh, I have you two on retainer. They're doing a house party. Just a little private concert. Bono's going to be there, do some songs, wear some weird glasses. He's going to move kind of strangely. It's all going to happen in the living room, right? Because what makes a party better than barbecue? Bono. And that's what Solomon has. He's got got art in his house, and he's got singers in his house, and that doesn't answer the abyss of his soul. So then he moves on to what probably is, it's probably the best strategy for hedonism because it's so powerful. He moves on to the pleasure of sex. Look at the second or the third part of verse 8. And I had many concubines the delight of the sons of man. We know from the rest of scripture that Solomon actually had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now, some commentators try to clean up scripture here, and they say, well, this wasn't really sexual. Um, The Hebrew word for concubine is actually, it's pretty crass in its sexual overtones. This is about sex. This is not conversation partners. This is sexual partners. And so Solomon has more sex than anybody. He's got more sexual options available to him than anybody. He can pick a different lover every day of the week. He explores sex like crazy and he gets to the end of it. And even as powerful as sex is, sex didn't fill the infinite abyss. Now, let's stop here for just a second. Just in case you're thinking, oh, well, my pleasure pursuit isn't on the list He adds a last kind of pleasure, which is the junk drawer for all the things that you think you've discovered that he didn't know about in verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So here's what's happening. This is the most comprehensive good life experiment of all time, and he starts his experiment off with pure, raw, blatant hedonism. Food and drink and sex and money and comfort and nature. Maybe these things will make my soul rest. Maybe these things will be the answer to the good life. And he gets to the end of this first experiment, and here's his conclusion. Ecclesiastes 2.1, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. And I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." Here's what 's happening um, that word meaningless or vain that 's a, that's a hebrew word that 's being translated that that the word is it 's havel havel, and that word literally means vapor or smoke here 's what he 's saying: I went after pleasure like crazy as the answer to the good life, and pleasure was elusive and hard to grasp, just like smoke, true pleasure, true delight, pleasure was like smoke in that it's temporary and fleeting, like like mist in the morning that gets burned up by the afternoon, pleasures like that. It's fleeting. Um, can anybody else be honest about the diminishing returns of pleasures we pursue hedonism? Right? Uh, if you start going to alcohol as the thing that's going to make life meaningful or beautiful or livable, what happens? Diminishing returns stops being as potent. You have to start using more and more and more. And before long, you're just drinking to sort of maintain feeling somewhat normal and numb. And you don't even have the benefits of the pleasure. Or you go to porn and the first time it's so exciting. It's like a drug and your endorphins are going crazy. And before long, you're having to go into deeper and darker rabbit trails to try to find porn that's exciting so that you can get a little bit of the buzz. Or money, You're thinking in your twenties, if I could just get to X amount of dollars and then you get to X amount of dollars and you're like, well, I still feel like a mess inside and your goal starts to move back, right? Now it's this amount. Now it's this amount. And then you get that. And what happens? It's diminishing returns. Why? Because pleasure is Havel. It's like smoke. It's elusive. And pleasure is also like Havel in that it's just empty, It's not empty in that all pleasure is bad. We're going to get to that. But it's empty in that pleasure is not the source of meaning or a meaningful life. So here's what's happening. There is something way worse than not having the things that you think you have to have to be happy. It's having all the things that you thought would make you happy and being miserable. That's what's happening in this story. Now, what does this mean? What do you do with this? What are your takeaways? If this is ancient wisdom for modern living, what should you walk away with the understanding of in light of this? I'll give you four things I think are essential conclusions. Conclusion number one, human beings are creatures of desire. We're creatures of desire. In fact, Ecclesiastes really is a chronicle of desire. It's a journal of desire. And the Bible, far from being dishonest about desire, is really honest about the fact that we are people that have hunger and thirst. The Bible, in fact, begins with the meal driven by desire that leads to brokenness in the world. And the Bible ends with the meal driven by desire that follows on the heels of the restoration of the world. And in between, here's what you see at every turn in scripture. Human beings are incredibly hungry and incredibly thirsty. And that's true of All of us. There aren't just some hungry people or some people with a lot of desire. All people, all humans, universal reality in every culture, in every age, modern and ancient, we are people of desire. We desire significance. Like nihilism is just not appealing to us. The idea that there's no point to the universe or no point to life, that is one of the most bleak places to land as a human being. We want a life that matters. We desire pleasure. We'll see in a little bit that pleasure is actually a gift from God, that that we were made with taste buds to enjoy food and ears to enjoy music and eyes to enjoy light and beauty and creation and skin to enjoy touch. We desire comfort. Uh, Today I took just a couple of minutes to walk through our nursery because I always like to see our babies and see the volunteers that love them. And one of the little boys in there was crying because he had been dropped off and wanted his mom. That starts really early, right? The the need to be comforted from the outside in. Well, that doesn't go away when we become adults, does it? There's still that need. There's still that desire to be comforted, for something or someone to tell us, hey, it's going to be okay. We have the desire for identity. Who am I and what am I and what's the value that I bring to this world and what's the weight of my life if somebody puts it on the scales? We desire beauty. C.S. Lewis nails it with beauty. It's, it's not just that we want to see beauty. We want somehow to be a part of what is beautiful. We want to taste it. We want to be in it. Now, these desires are at conflict within each other, and they're at conflict within each other in such a way that really bad things tend to happen. One author puts it like this, a being whose wants make no sense, don't harmonize, whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want not to at the same time. You're equipped for farce or for, ev- or for even tragedy more than you are for happy endings. Like, that's true. And the reason it's so true is because we're such weird, bizarre beings. We're weird and bizarre because God made us with bodies that are good, And he put us in a world that he called good and he gave us desires and needs in our bodies for this world to be um, good and pleasurable as we eat and drink and sleep and make love and all those things that are creaturely and physical. But at the very same time, he made us immortal image bearers of him that are created for God. So we're made for this world, but we're also made for God. And that makes it really confusing when God's out of the picture and all we have is the stuff that's under the sun, but the longings for God are still there. It means we front load on all the things under the sun, tons of desires that they can never bench press or fulfill. So you and me, we are creatures of desire. Second takeaway is that desire itself is actually not the problem. It's not bad to have desire. It's not wrong to have desire. It's part of God's created design to have desire. Jesus said, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's desire. Isaiah prophesied, come everyone who thirsts, desire. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The problem is not that you and me have desire. The problem is actually twofold. The the first part of the problem is that sin actually started when human beings took their deepest hunger to things under the sun. Our first parents were made to enjoy God, to have their ultimate identity, their ultimate comfort, their ultimate meaning, their ultimate satisfaction in him, and then they were given all kinds of good gifts, like sex and like food and like work. And what happened in a really tragic moment is they actually traded creator for creation. And in that moment, something really horrible happened. What happened was this. Sin made us blind and cold and hard and even dead to satisfaction that is beyond the sun. Human beings are like, we're like this crazy race of people that are born in a cave that still have eyes. We're born in the darkness and we've never seen the light and nobody really remembers what the light is like. And we're groping through the cave, but we know there's got to be more. We know that there's got to be some reason why we have these things in our heads. And we know that our skin craves warmth, but we can't figure out where the light is because the entrance to the cave is hidden. That's you and me. That's what this writer in Ecclesiastes is talking about. The infinite abyss is there because all we can see is that which is under the sun. And so we try to answer that need and that longing with our senses and it fails us. C.S. Lewis, as usual, was really helpful here. Here's what he writes. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Like the Bible is actually not anti-desire. The Bible is just honest about the fact that we take our deepest desire to things under the sun. And here's the problem. Things under the sun did not create you. Things under the sun cannot forgive you. Things under the sun cannot name you. Things under the sun can't heal you. Nothing under the sun will last. And beautiful things under the sun can not include you in their beauty. This is why St. Augustine in his awesome memoir confession said this. For it was my sin that not in him, but in his creatures, myself and others, I sought for pleasures, sublimities, truths, and so fell headlong into sorrows, confusion, and error. Here's the problem. It's this crazy conflict of having an infinite abyss that can't be filled by finite things and not having the ability to see or obtain, or even really know the beauty of the God that's beyond the sun. And this leads us to the third takeaway. Jesus came from beyond the sun to be the answer to our deepest desire. Jesus came to be the bread of life that satisfies like regular bread can. Jesus came to be living water that quenches thirst more than any other water can. He came to be the wine of the new covenant that gladdens the heart longer and deeper than any wine can. And here's what's crazy about Jesus. He did create you. He can forgive you. He can name you or give you an identity. He can heal you. He does last. And he is the ultimate beauty that actually calls you in the last day to be a part of his beauty. We started with uh, Blaise Pascal and his really sober words about the infinite abyss, which makes me ask the question, did, did he ever experience the filling of that infinite abyss? On November 23rd, 1654, he was 31 years old. He had a really pretty difficult life, lost his mom when he was a kid, was prone to health problems, and on that night during 1654, which he described as a year of grace, for two hours from 10.30 p.m. until 12.30 a.m., he experienced a kind of spiritual inferno. He journaled about this experience, and he took that page of his journal and sewed it into his coat until the day he died at age 39. Here's what he wrote. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Not of philosophers and scholars. Certainty. Certainty. Heartfelt. Joy. Peace. God of Jesus Christ. God of Jesus Christ. Joy. Joy. Tears of joy. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee The only true God in Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. There is a fountain of pleasure. There is a there is a source to all delight. He is not a thing, and He came to you in His Son Jesus. To bring you back into union with himself so that the infinite abyss could be filled by the infinite grace of God. Salvation in Jesus is not about getting a new to do list or about having your desire numbed out or about putting a gray blanket of boring life around your shoulders so that everything's gray and meaningless. Salvation is about actually drinking from the fountain of delight that is God himself. It's turning from all the things that can't fulfill your deepest longings to the only one that can. And this leads us to the fourth thing, which is really beautiful and liberating. When ultimate desire is answered in Jesus, things under the sun are again, good gifts. See here, here's what seems to be the choice for most of humanity we either going to be hedonists that worship the gifts of God as God. Sex becomes God. Money becomes God. Food becomes God. Or we're going to become hermits that run from all the gifts because we don't want to be controlled by them. We can't enjoy food. We can't enjoy sex with our spouse. We can't enjoy wine. Here's what's crazy about Jesus. The good life isn't found in being a hedonist who worships stuff under the sun or in being a hermit who runs from stuff under the sun. The good life actually happens when our loves get ordered by God, when our loves get ordered. The truth is there's some things that are created that we love way too much, and there are some things that we should love way more that we don't love enough. And God, by his grace, through the process of growth with Jesus, He starts to reorder your love so that you desire rightly God first and creative things as gifts. And Ecclesiastes hints at this. Here's what it says, 3.12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Ecclesiastes 5.18 says, Behold, I've seen what is good. And fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with one, which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life which God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Ecclesiastes 9.9 says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life." that he's given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. See, here's the reality. Virtue really is having your loves ordered and vice is really having your loves disordered. And what starts to happen by God's grace is when Jesus becomes ultimate and food simply becomes a gift that he gave you, When Jesus is ultimate and money, whether you have a lot or a little, becomes a gift he's given you to steward. When Jesus is ultimate and creation is a gift, not a God that you go to to answer things it can't possibly answer, what starts to happen is all the things under the sun, far from being these horrible gods that destroy our lives, they start to become good gifts that we enjoy in an act of worship before God. If you're single and you think that a spouse is going to name you or satisfy you or be your comfort or be your ultimate meaning in life or complete you, here's what's happening. You're loading so much weight on that person that there's no way that you can ever have a meaningful relationship with them. But when Jesus is the one that names you, when he's your comfort, when he's your source of identity, when he's your joy, it frees you to receive a spouse. If God grants you one as a gift instead of a God that you try to worship. If you're a mom and you're trying to put all of this weight on your kids, that they're, the one that they're the ones that give you your identity. They're the ones that are your future. They're the ones that bring meaning into your life. You're loading so much weight on them that there's no way that you or they can stand under the pressure. But when Jesus is your meaning, when Jesus is your answer, when Jesus is your future, it takes the pressure off and you can actually enjoy your children as a gift from God. In marriage, to ask sex with your spouse to be what satisfies you or to be the essence of you expressing who you are or the fulfillment of your deepest longings, you're setting yourself up. You're setting yourself up for the good gift of sex to be a God that's going to beat you down. But when Jesus is your Lord, you can receive it as a gift, or you can lay it down when need be for loving your spouse. Jesus comes to rescue and redeem and reorder disordered loves. And if you want to really know what growing in Christian holiness is, it's not trying to figure out just intellectually how to make a longer list of rules. If you want to know what Christian discipleship is, it's a life of love in the Holy spirit. That's why it's the fulfillment of the law to love God. First means that you're free to love people. And it means that you're free to not worship stuff, but to receive it as gifts or to lay it down.